Yat e and welcome to Determination, a podcast about sovereignty, self-determination, indigenous brilliance, and the people who embody them. I'm your host, Dara Blackwater Yanishia. Beshbacha in Nishle, Dotsena Jenny Bashish Chin, Ado Beshbacha Idashiche, Ado Taj Ini Dashinale. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Diana Vihill. Diana, or D, is Tiwa from Nanbe Owinge, New Mexico. She graduated from Fort Lewis College, my alma mater as well, with a Bachelor of Science in Cellular and Molecular Biology. After college, Dee worked for the National Institute of Health, working toward the ethical inclusion of American Indians and Alaska Natives in clinical research studies. Dee currently serves her community as a research program coordinator for the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. For today's episode, I want to give a brief warning that we touch on some difficult topics, including the discussion of non-consensual experiments that researchers have done in communities of color. Dee and I don't intend to represent the voices from all of these communities. We can only speak to our own experiences and what we've observed. As you'll hear in the podcast, I met Deanna a few years ago in Tuskegee, Alabama, where we attended a reparations and reconciliation conference in remembrance of the victims of the syphilis experiments that the United States Public Health Service conducted in that community. The lessons that Dee and I learned in Tuskegee will stick with us forever, and I think I speak for us both when I say that we were changed by what we learned there and by the people who were kind enough to educate us about their own trauma, which is really a hard thing to do. I'd like to dedicate this episode to the men who survived the syphilis experiments, those who didn't, their families, and their descendants. I hope and pray that knowledge will be the ladder that takes us to a more just and compassionate place together. Without further ado, here's Deanna Hill. There's a line at the store. Yeah, I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. Yeah, I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. Yeah, I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. Yeah, I'm indigenous. I hear your whispers behind my back, looking at me like I'm. I'm Umbiakindi, now Kawe, Diana Vihil, Navito, Kawe, Ove Goyo, Nandambe Wingota. Hello, my name is Diana, or D for short, and I'm from Nambe Pueblo, New Mexico. I currently work with the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health with their infectious disease prevention programs, um, which actually uh, goes really well with how we've reconnected. It's a very timely career to be in in the past couple of years. Like you had no idea that this was coming in our lifetime. And yet like you were drawn to that and have been able to do so much cool work in your role to help spread awareness and information and educate people about COVID-19 and about uh, how to take care of each other in our communities and how to really like get through this in a way that is both based on science, but also speaks to traditions and speaks to cultural norms in native communities. Um, can you speak a little bit more about your role at Johns Hopkins and like what the, what it's been like navigating the COVID-19 pandemic in the role that you're in? It's really interesting that you mention the timeliness of my prior training because I was at NIH for a while and then- NIH moved, is the Nas National Institute of Health? 
Yeah. yeah. So I, I was there. And then in February of 2019, I moved. That's when I um, took the job with Hopkins and I moved to Chinle, Arizona. And then like three weeks later, you know, we're in a full-blown pandemic. The Navajo Nation has shut down. There are public health orders in place. And so it's been interesting. I didn't really have a prescribed role, but I just started helping out where needed. And it started out with uh, community supplies, just getting people the supplies they needed to actually quarantine and isolate, working on a little bit on testing strategy, organizing meetings, helping the case management team. Uh, And then it turned into coordinating, this is what I do now, uh, coordinating a study that looks at respiratory disease. Um, It's called Respiratory Syncytial Virus and COVID-19 Surveillance Amongst Native Americans, or SUNA for short. And um, so now I do a lot more with that, uh, with the direct pandemic stuff, and I help with our communications. And um, it's been interesting. And the Navajo Nation is has a lot more infrastructure than my tribe does. And so, uh, you know, there's a whole public health department and there are public health experts to advise the president on what guidance to put out and such. And uh, my community doesn't have that. And so it was me and another um, community member who linked up and and started writing uh, advice, I guess, guidance to the governor who would approve it and send it out. Um, and it was actually a lot of it was based on just my experience and work and with the Navajo Nation during that time. So, oh wow! So this cool. is the governor of Nambe Pueblo that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that is it Perez? What is his name? Yeah, um, yeah, Governor Philip Perez or Perez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I think he would say Perez. Okay, I got to meet him on a broadband feasibility study that. I did when I was texting you, um, I think it was early last year that we were um, trying to see what we could do with our broadband. And I really enjoyed him. Um, I, I hope that everyone in your community was able to stay safe. We were there during the COVID pandemic and just you know taking every precaution possible um, just because they were trying to figure out how to set up a network um, to educate the kids while everyone was trying to stay home, but also we were trying to do it so safely because I know the Pueblos really shut down and took, obviously everyone was taking it seriously, um, well, hopefully early in the pandemic, but uh, the Pueblos really, I felt stepped up in saying like, we're going to assert our sovereignty to protect our communities during this pandemic. And it's so cool that you stepped up. It was you and who else did you say? A fellow community member, her name is Markel Musgrave. Okay, that you both stepped up to like even assist the governor. And I think that's so cool because, you know, we get this pressure. I'm sure you've heard this, like when you go off to school, it's all, or like when we were in DC, it's like, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? Because what we're supposed to do as native people is go get educated and then come back to our communities and, you know, help our communities, like share that knowledge that we went off and, and gained and then bring it back home. And that sometimes is, it feels like a lot of unfair pressure that we have to deal with as native students and people trying to just navigate the world and live our lives and find joy. 
And it's so cool that like in this situation, that's exactly what you were able to do. And, uh, and in a way had to do because you were home, it was a pandemic and it's like, well, now I'm home. I have no other choice, but to be here. And so how am I going to help and, and plug into government and, you know, actually take all this knowledge that you gained and, and really use it in a meaningful way. Yeah, it was exciting. Uh, I've been, I don't know if you've seen this around Facebook, mostly is where I see this, but it, it is this uh, meme type of post. But basically it says, um, stop telling Native kids to go off to school and come back and um, work for their tribe or, you know, do good things for their tribe when there's no infrastructure for them to do that. And my criticism of that is just, um, you know, why don't we build it ourselves? And I think that's what the pandemic has really taught me um, just being here and also more things being remote. I think before you really had to be physically there, you had to be in the meetings, you had to, um, you know, go to their house or however, but with COVID and people's use of Zoom or email more um, or just phone calls, then I think it made it much easier to build that infrastructure yourself. So and that's one thing that has been really interesting. And I'm glad you enjoyed our governor. He is definitely one of my faves. And, oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, he's always, he has a very good open door policy. I think he tries really hard. And it'd be oh, that's real sad when his, when his term's over. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you first, before we kind of get into the meat of what we want to talk about, which is, uh, you know, clinical trials, informed consent, regulatory boards or regulatory bodies over um, clinical trials, especially in indigenous communities, you mentioned that, that you're coordinating the study on respiratory disease in indigenous communities among native peoples. Um, can you flesh that out a little bit more and tell us a little bit more information about like what you're studying, but then also talk about um, like what kind of, uh, what kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, hoops you have to jump through in order to really pave the way to make sure that people are safe in this study? Because I'm sure that's, if you're coordinating it, that's a lot of what you're doing is like making sure people are informed, making sure consent is obtained, making sure it's done in an ethical way. So uh, can you tell us more about it and just like launch into all of these topics that we're going to cover today? Sure can. And I think for the purposes of this conversation, I will actually not talk about that surveillance study. I might oh, sure. a little bit, but um, the, which I'm sure you probably heard about as well, the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine trials on the Navajo Nation, um, or I should say with the Navajo Nation. Um, but I think that would be a better place to start because sure. it really called, um, I feel like usually people don't care about research or they're not thinking about research, but with this vaccine trial, everybody was talking about research, um, specifically that trial. And a lot of ethical concerns were raised, like, um, you know, are other people, why are we just being tested? Are other people being tested as well? Um, how informed is informed consent and how are we assuring that that happens for this trial? How is it ethical to compensate people for their time in the trial? Uh, all, all these questions came up and um, 
and that was mostly on social media that we were hearing that and different people wrote articles and did interviews and such and we always tried to reach out to those individuals to just have a, a conversation and be super transparent about how this came to be what the process is and, and how we're assuring that it's done in an appropriate way and so from there um it was a different our staff and ourselves through work were experiencing a different uh, reality because people were calling our office saying, hey, you know, I really want to join this study. How do I join? Um, and we were getting calls and calls even before we were started enrollment. And then we started enrollment and then we had people from other tribes emailing us, contacting us, you know, how do I, how do I join? It's so important that Native people are represented in this study and all um, all of that. And so, yeah, we informed consent. I think for this study specifically was the most important part. I mean, it always is the most important part of any research with humans, but for this study specifically, uh, it was pretty strict. So folks had to take a comprehension test after they went through the consent form that just says that they understand the risks and the benefits of the study. They understand what the procedures are, um, that it is voluntary, that they can leave anytime they want, uh, all of that good stuff. And um, so there was that comprehension test, but then we also had to ensure that folks uh, were English speaking and fluent in English so that was another concern from the community was um, how, you know, there are a lot of elders or a lot of people who only speak Navajo. How are you making sure that they're understanding this in English or that things are being translated properly? And so we didn't want to take that risk of things getting lost in translation or, you know, people really signing up for something. And then later on, which I think is the most awful thing later on realizing like, oh, I didn't know that's what I agreed to. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wasn't aware of this. And so, um, we really tried to take a lot of precautions against that. And all of our staff who were doing the consenting had been trained um, in good clinical practice, research ethics with the Native communities. Um, they had their own specific consent training from Pfizer and then from our sites. And so we really tried to make sure that that was done really well. And um, the other important piece of this or any research, uh, clinical trials or research with humans, uh, is the institutional review board process, which is in place to ensure that research is done ethically. And the Navajo Nation Human Research Review Board reviewed this study, um, but in a little bit of a different way than they normally would because it is a pandemic. And mm -hmm. so they have really strict uh, guidance before research can get approved and you have to go through um, chapter meetings and get approval. You have to go to agency council meetings and get approval. If you're doing it in a school, you need to get approval from um, those, that leadership. If you're doing it in the hospital, you have to get a letter of support from that leadership. And so there's levels to this, right? Before it even gets to them yeah. to look at. And I, so I have, have never done research on this level, like human subject research, but the people that have done it, that I've talked to, it just seems like the independent, is it independent review board, IRB? Um, institutional. Institutional review board, that it's just such a strenuous process and that you have to, it takes so much time. You have to go through so many different levels of it. And 
Um, so who, who are the governing bodies of that? And is it different for like each um, institution that you're doing research at? Like, I don't know how any of this works. So like does U University of Arizona have one and ASU has one and Harvard has its own or is it kind of a governing body over everybody? That is a great question and it can be really hard to navigate and even sometimes tribes still have a hard time navigating this or just any research group because um, each research or academic institutions that do research, they have their own institutional review board. Uh, any research that is funded by the National Institutes of Health or some other type of government um, funding has its own type of re review or requirements for review. And then um, National Indian Health Services, they have an IRB. And so tribes who don't have a, their own IRB, they can go through national. Uh, some tribes do have their own IRB, like Navajo Nation, I think was the first tribal IRB and they have their own rules. And so it depends on, on if the IRB, which is a federal assurance, maybe um, something like that. So it, it just certifies that the IRB is legitimate, they are doing everything that they're supposed to do. And so you need that in order to be an IRB of record. And so for our studies, we go through Navajo IRB and we go through Hopkins IRB. And Navajo IRB requires that we have Hopkins IRB approval before we submit to them. So that's how we do that, but oh, wow, um, yeah. So the process of that is, is really for the Navajo nation as much as you can say, um, it's really just like giving them all of the information about your study, like what your plans are, what the data will be used for, how it will be collected, and then how, like what will be done with it after I imagine, and kind of goes through just these contractual obligations of you and them and the participants and, and rights I'm sure as well. Yeah, yeah. All of those items are covered and then IRBs have what's called continuing review um, as well and so periodically they'll review your application also anytime you make changes to your protocol which is what we call the research plan um, then you submit an amendment to the IRB they review it they approve it or they don't and then you go from there so they they really take their job serious as they should. They, yeah. they go through those documents very thoroughly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so the kind of the framework of this podcast is talking about sovereignty and self-determination and how, you know, all of these different subjects that we're covering, whether it be climate or whether it be health or education or broadband really fit into these concepts of sovereignty and self-determination. And so what I'm hearing from you filtering it through my lawyer brain is basically saying like, this is the way that the Navajo nation or any native nation is asserting its sovereignty and how it's 
upholding the ability for the people in these studies, the cit tribal citizens, to maintain that self-determination is to you know, make sure that the people who are coming into the community to collect this data um, are doing everything that they're supposed to be doing, that they're doing it in a good way, doing it in the right way for good purposes and sticking to those purposes and not go you know, not going outside of the stated purpose. Um, and that is self-determination and sovereignty in a nutshell. So that's that's really cool. I didn't I didn't even know that the Navajo Nation had their own IRB. And that's also really great that IHS has one for tribes that maybe don't have the resources to develop their own IRB or you know keep that process going in their own communities. Yeah, it's really cool. And one thing that I like the most about it is uh, that tribes do assert their their sovereignty in, in in many different ways when it comes to the IRB. But um, you know, they'll say no, we won't do that. Or like the Navajo Nation has the moratorium. I can never say this word right on genetics research, and so they don't allow genetic research to take place. But they're actually looking at that now and figuring out like. If we, if genetic research is beneficial, how do it in a good way and, and ensure the safety of you know our um, citizens? And so, I think that's really super cool. And and they are not afraid to to let people know when they're not doing it right and or when they don't approve of this, you know, or when even to the most extreme level, you know, Navajo code or research law is broken. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight. And I, you say this a lot in meetings, so I really learned this from you, but it's important to highlight that the reason that these Native nations are developing these strict rules of allowing people to come in and do research is because it is important for that research to get done. And it is important for Native people to participate in these trials and for this data to exist um, so that we can, so that you know, medical professionals can know how to serve us even better. Yet we want to make sure that it's done in a good way because we've seen it done poorly in the past and we've seen the harm that uh, researchers and medical professionals can do in our communities. But we want to avoid that while still allowing the work to move forward because we recognize its importance. Would you say that's a fair assessment of what's happening? Absolutely, that is spot on and you put it so well. Why, why is it important for Native people to participate in clinical trials? This is my favorite uh, topic or question actually because I, I love research and I think it's important, but because it, it can tell us so much. Um, a lot of research that medical recommendations or different health recommendations are based on is based on research that is not really generalizable to the communities that we live in. And so in order to have the best recommendations or the best prevention strategies, we really need research to be done in our own because maybe we face different uh, barriers than another community that's impacting our ability to have whatever outcome, health outcome, right? There are other specific things. So I really want to make sure that people don't think that we need clinical trials because like we're genetically different or something. And that's why it's important to study uh, 
you know, to, to study different things with us um, because we would be different than others because they're of genetics. I, I really want to make sure that people are clear that there is no biological base for race and also natives are, have been racialized. We're, um, you know, a political entity. Um, and so I think sometimes those can get conflated, but the main, so with that out of the picture, uh, it's really important for us to be involved in clinical trials because there are, and I'll just address this from an infectious disease standpoint, maybe there are different variants circulating in one area versus the rest of the world or something like that. Maybe Delta is more prevalent in my community. Um, and, and also with my time at NIH, there were a lot of, it's not a lot, there were a few instances of individuals who have rare diseases and there's no FDA approved treatment plan or there's no FDA approved um, medication for whatever disease. And so then individuals are, their only choice is a clinical study that addresses this or studies this thing. Um, and so it's so important that we have, that we wanna know about these things and then that we have access to them and one example of this actually did happen um, was that there was this bacteria causing disease and there was a vaccine for that. And, um, but the strain that causing disease in this region was different causing disease in the areas that the clinical trials were taking place. And so those vaccines were specific to that strain and, um, and was protective against that strain in those communities, but did virtually nothing for folks in the communities over here. And so uh, it wasn't until there was a clinical trial that they found, and it was actually the place I work for now, found that um, this vaccine does not protect against the strain that's here. So let's look at other vaccines. And then now the, the new vaccine that is effective uh, is now the vaccine that is given to everybody a part of their routine care or their routine immunizations. That so makes, that's why it's important. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. Um, I honestly, if you had asked me before you explained that, I would have probably said like, oh yeah, it's a biological thing. So that's, <laughs> that's so interesting how deep that common misconception goes of like, it's important because like native blood is valuable and different in some way, um, which kind of reminds me of two things. One is when you had me, you hosted me to come speak, we were taking questions from these undergrad students who were young and out there doing an internship, um, all indigenous students. And one of them said that uh, someone, one of their mentors at some point had said, uh, oh, good, it's good to have Native people on the team, you can help us get more Native blood. And it was so offensive and such a gut punch because it was like, that's, it reduced that student to you know, not a science, not a, an up and coming scientist who could come and like, you know, learn all this stuff and, and be an asset to their community or anything like that. It reduced that student to being an asset to his mentor, quote unquote mentor, um, so that the mentor could use that student and his connections and his network into an ind indigenous community in order to um, obtain like samples 
essentially, <laughs> which was, which was awful. But I think that's how it's seen so much that like, you know, we as native people, we know that the things on our body, whether it be our hair or blood, even like our fingernails are sacred parts of us. And that's why, you know, food sovereignty is such an important thing because we know that the, the food that we're putting into our body, the nourishment and, and the water that we're drinking is it it's creating us. It's allowing us to continue like creating these parts of us that, that are hopefully, you know, uh, in this, bubble in the circle of Hojo is what we would say in Navajo of like this sacredness and this goodness that we keep in us. And so to let something like that go, whether it be your blood or your hair or whatever, is really like an intimate relationship. Like, I think that our non-native listeners maybe just need to understand how how important that is and how huge that is for a native person to participate in something like this because a lot of us our traditional teachings tell us like you don't let pieces of yourself go float around in the world you have to hold them close and protect them yeah most many of those teachings are similar um in terms of hmm, a research standpoint our tribe actually a lot of people don't do research in my pueblo um or they come they combine the eight northern pueblos or just the tewa speaking pueblos or something like that and i haven't faced or i haven't heard i should say as much uh research resistance here um but i think that's just because it's not around it's not just it's not in our view um, mm -hmm. and so you there's nothing really to resist but in other native communities um, where research is around or, or you know they're they're the community that everybody wants to research um, there's definitely a lot of that and it goes back to their traditions and um, or traditional teachings about yourself and what that means and and how you share that yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense and we are again it's this kind of relationship that is being cultivated with researchers and indigenous communities. And this is why it's so cool that indigenous people like yourself are going into this or that are in this field. You're not even going into it. You're like in it, you're running the show at this point, but that's why it's so cool is like, you have an understanding of these native beliefs and, you know, possible like religious beliefs or cultural practices. And you also have an understanding of like the IRB process. And so you're really bridging this gap um, that maybe white researchers have really struggled with to understand in the past. Because when we talk about informed consent, a lot of the times we're thinking about like what what obligations does a researcher have to tell a participant? Um, but it it's definitely a two-way relationship in my view of like researchers also have to have an understanding of who this participant is, what their background is, what what reservations they might might have about participating in a study, um, what excitements they might have about participating participating in a study, and you know how their worldview affects all of that. Definitely. And this is where tribal IRBs really come into play um, or have hold such significance in the process because it's folks from their tribe and the IRB can be made up of different people, different tribal IRBs, depending on if they're like federally 
certified or not will have different criteria for who is on that committee and uh, you have to have a minimum of X, Y, and Z type of people, but you can always have more than that. And so they can have folks who represent different aspects of their tribes. So people who are maybe the um, representing the legal side or the scientific side or the non-scientific side or the traditional healer or medicine or medical practitioner side. And so you can have, or maybe they're religious leaders or traditional leaders. Um, you can have all these different people at the table to really inform the research. And when someone puts a research plan forward, these folks review it and can say, actually, that's not going to work because this, or you can do this as long as you do this. So a cool process. Um, for tribes that don't have an IRB, that becomes much more difficult. And national IHS, I'm not, national IHS, um, IRB, I'm not as familiar with how they function, like if they have um, a representative from the community sit on that board to speak on the research, but uh, yeah, if, if that doesn't happen, it definitely should. Yeah, so sticking to this IRB is not only a way for Native nations and their leadership to know and understand what people are researchers are doing in the community and doing with this data, but it's also a way for them to protect themselves um, by you know setting this plan and sticking to it uh, because we know what goes wrong. We've seen it go wrong. You know, uh, we can't talk about clinical trials in Native communities with, without talking about the ASU case. The researchers from the Arizona State University collected blood samples from tribal members at the Havasupai tribe. And in their IRB, I'm assuming, they said that they were going to use this in one way because they wanted to do diabetes research. And you know, the Havasupai tribe had a real need for information and, and research because diabetes was affecting their tribal citizens at such a rate that they, they just needed help and they needed to understand, they wanted a better understanding of, of what they can do, what they could do to help their tribal citizens be healthier. And this was back in the 80s. So um, these researchers, I, from what I understand from the court documents, there was one guy, John Martin, who was brought on to do this diabetes study. And then he brought on another researcher at uh, the Arizona State University, Therese Markow, I think was her name, and she was a geneticist. So in her mind, she really wanted to do a study on mental disorders. She had studied a lot of schizophrenia and things like that. And she approached John Martin about like, okay, well, I want to study this. What do you think about that? And he said, the tribe's probably not going to go for that. We're going to stick to the diabetes study. And so she took these samples, they gathered these blood samples, and she ended up doing this study and publishing papers on uh, these other genetic disorders that she wanted to study without getting the tribe's consent. And so the Havasupai tribe sued them, and they settled out of court, and ASU ended up paying $700,000. Uh, they had to return the blood samples, they had to give some scholarships, um, and then help the tribe obtain federal funds for a health, a health clinic. So these IRBs are important, not just to inform the people who are uh, 
you know, allowing researchers to come in and do the studies, but also to protect the researchers by giving you a plan to stick to, it seems. Yes, that's right. And I recently was uh, a core, a guest faculty um, in our, one of our summer institute courses, which was all about um, research ethics, health research ethics. And one thing that one of the students brought up was um, who is the informed consent process or the consent form meant to protect? Uh, is it the uh, participant or the institution doing the research? Um, and that, I feel like that kind of goes with what you just said about how it works both ways, um, the, the IRB's role in research. Yeah, definitely. One of the most interesting projects that I think we've been able to be a part of with our work with the Urban Institute, what is it? Urban Institute of- Urban Indian Health Institute. Thanks, I'm terrible at acronyms. Urban Indian Health Institute out of, it's a nonprofit out of Seattle that uh, Dee and I are on a meeting with every Friday and they make all sorts of amazing resources. They are so brilliant. It is truly an honor to work with them. And one of the resources that they made was this list of questions that if you are native and you participate or really for anybody, but it's specifically geared toward native people, but uh, if you are participating in a clinical trial, these are the questions that you should ask. And so we made this one pager that people can take with them because sometimes when you're sitting there in front of a researcher or a medical professional, you, your mind just goes blank and you don't know how you are supposed to be protecting yourself, what you're allowed to ask, what they are going to tell you, what you, what is taboo to ask, and which is really nothing. I mean, if they're going to do anything with your body and your data, you should be able to ask them literally anything. Um, but it's a question, a list of questions to remind people, like, these are the things you should be asking. This is what you're allowed to know. Um, and I thought that research was that resource was just so beneficial and a very cool thing that they thought to do. Agreed. Their clinical trials pocketbook is probably my favorite one because mm. it has uh, def common definitions of words. Yeah, um, and I think that's one. so helpful because it can be really intimidating. I mean, I only am familiar with these things because I work with them every day, but if I wasn't, I don't know that I would know how to ask questions or know where to look for definitions of these words. Um, it would be a really intimidating process. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how we met, um, which is so cool. This is one of the main reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you because uh, the way that we met is just so crazy and cool. And the fact that it led us to this conversation today is even more awesome. So we attended together. We didn't know each other before this, but uh, we both ended up in Tuskegee, Alabama, which is where Tuskegee University is. And that is where these infamous um, syphilis experiments happened uh, that were conducted by the United States Public Health Service. Is that right? Yeah. That's okay. Right. Yeah. So, um, and we learned there that most people call it the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, which that community absolutely hates that title because they weren't done within the community of Tuskegee. They were done by the United States Public Health in, uh, Service at Tuskegee, which is an important distinction for that community. Um, so 
for those of you who don't know, these experiments began in 1932 and the United States Public Health Service did these experiments on 399 black men who had syphilis and 201 black men who didn't have syphilis were um, participating in this study. And these, this study ran from 1932 until 1972. And they continued even after penicillin was discovered as a common and, you know, effective use for syphilis in 1943. So from 1943 to 1972, these men and their families were suffering, some of them, from this disease that was totally curable at this point, but the United States Public Health Service did not choose to share that cure with them. They instead withheld that cure just to see what syphilis would continue to do upon the black body. And this was such a violation of ethics, such a violation of human rights, and just truly like having been there and seeing and meeting the people that were affected by this and the descendants of this, the survivors or, you know, the people who fell victim to the study and didn't survive it, it was really such a, a moving and such a visceral experience. Um, what was your experience of, uh, they, they do this every year, I should say, it's called the, was, what was it called, the Reparations and Reconciliation Conference? Um, I think it's called the public health intensive, but then that year specifically, because it was, I think, 500 years or 400 and something years um, since the, since colonization, um, they had, uh, it was a special reparations and reconciliation theme. Yeah. And all of that tied in of, you know, what, because they had these brilliant scholars. Um, so one day Mustakim, I think is how, I'm sorry if I just messed that, that uh, name up, but she gave this really poignant speech. She's an author of this book called Slavery at Sea. And she does so much cool research about, you know, what, about colonization and, and how this has affected black communities and how this has affected black bodies. And then, um, you know, coming to that, that place where these terrible experiments were done on, um, you know, former Muscogee land, nonetheless, it, you know, it's just like, it was such an interesting intersectionality of all of these, um, you know, these really traumatic events in our history that people were just coming together to talk about and like figure out how to heal. Yeah, it was really intense actually um, I think we really were lucky that we got to go in a year where they were talking where the theme was reparations and reconciliation because usually those or you know slavery or any kind of systemic oppression is completely left out of the conversation of public health research or any kind of like infectious disease research, research spaces, and even research ethics. I had to take a research ethics course when I first started with NIH, and they talk about the United States Public Health Service syphilis studies in Tuskegee, and they don't talk about it in a way um, that only the people from there could, right? Mm -hmm. And and they miss this whole big picture and how everything is intertwined. And so um, it really opened my eyes and I actually think that's the 
that is the conference. I don't even know if you if it would call it a conference, but um, that really radicalized my thinking about uh, research and research's place in communities and oppressed communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and what that means and and how everything is intertwined and how laws and just this whole world that I just like, it was right there. And um, I just stayed so siloed in research that uh, I didn't make those connections. Um, but I'm really grateful that the folks here, these the scholars here did, um, and, and they did it so well. I think part of the reason that it's important for people of color to go into the things that you're doing and you know take these roles of leadership in research is to just have presence i think maybe you know sometimes we have we struggle with like imposter syndrome and and it's like what am i doing should i be here is this am i doing enough um, for my community but really just stepping back and realizing like your presence in this industry and in this space really serves a purpose if you did nothing else, because I think it maybe makes other researchers who are not from that community more cognizant of what they're doing. And it also puts you at the table to be a part of conversations where, you know, you can follow your gut and say like, "Mm, yeah, this, this, absolutely is the right way to do it. Or you can say like, "Mm, I think we're missing the mark here. Let's, let's take a little bit more time and talk about how to do this in a good way. Um, I was reading up about Tuskegee before this interview, and uh, there actually was a researcher who spoke up in like the 1960s of like, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years into the experiment who said like I don't I think there are some ethical violations here and he was silenced and um, they just kept going for another you know 10-15 years and then it wasn't until or it was a an associated press reporter who finally broke the story and then public outrage was the thing that shut it down but if you can put community members, people who, you know, are looking out for that community and have that community's best interest in mind because they have those connections, because they understand former harm, because they understand the importance of the clinical trial and its potential outcomes um, and have really taken that to heart like we did in Tuskegee, then you have kind of these checks that are already built into the system that maybe haven't been there historically. Yeah, and this actually, translates well so you had mentioned about the earlier when you were talking about this study you mentioned that they penicillin had become available and treated syphilis yet the researchers withheld that from the participants um and i wouldn't even call them participants yeah (laughs) to me participant is really voluntary so i'm just using that word real loosely here uh but that translates even to today with something that's super relevant, which is the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine and the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine and Johnson and Johnson, um, because folks who were entering these clinical trials um, are entering it at a time where there's not a vaccine, right? Or there's not an approved or an authorized vaccine. And so and what does that mean for the participants in the study? Do they not get the vaccine or do they get the vaccine? What Mm -hmm. we've learned from the United States Public Health Service study is 
that uh, it's incredibly unethical to, I mean, I'm, I say what we learned from that, but I mean, people know this, like if you're, you have the choice, the proper appropriate choice is to say, of course, when a treatment becomes available, give them the treatment. Um, and so that's what happened with the vaccine trials. Folks are in the, they're still in the vaccine trial to be monitored, but any, since it's placebo controlled, which means that um, some participants get the vaccine and some participants get like a saltwater solution injection instead, um, when a vaccine is authorized or becomes available to the, the public, then um, you, un, you do what's called unblinding and you figure out who had the placebo and then you give them the vaccine. Like that's mm. just the appropriate thing to do. Um, and so stuff that happened with this study translates to something very relevant to today. Oh, wow. That is a very cool development in the way that it's done. Um, because I, I guess in the past, I'm trying to put myself in that mindset of like what they were even trying to do. And I'm not even sure that I want my brain to be able to go there as far as like how you would justify, you know, allowing, allowing people who you could cure continue to suffer, even though you know that there is a fix for it. And I don't think we even need to go there, but just to, to know that it changed the way that these studies are done and how, you know, it changed the follow-up to create a better outcome for the participants of the, the, you know, informed and consenting participants of the studies is really very cool. And I want to add too, in my research, um, one of the other good things that came from that horrible, horrible um, situation was that there Congress eventually in 1974, they funded a national commission to protect human subjects in biomedical and behavior, behavioral research. And this commission did what was called the Belmont Report. So they were supposed to identify the minimum ethics principles for human subject research. And so in this Belmont Report, they included informed consent as a basic tenet of uh, research ethics. And so it's interesting to see how these policy changes come from, you know, it's not by no means is it saying like, oh yeah, well, it was worth it. You know, thank God that happened. That's not even remotely what we're saying, but it's just interesting to see how these policies evolve from these situations that, you know, these really horrible people created. What is even more interesting to me is that Prior to the Belmont report, so that was you know, in the 70s, um, there, were the, there was the Nuremberg Code based on the Nuremberg trials in Nazi Germany. And that created kind of the baseline of uh, research ethics or medical ethics, maybe research and medical ethics um, for the country, except in the United States, which I don't know why the United, I do know why, let me not say that, but the United States has this tendency to think that they're better than everybody else and they're um, they're just sort of immune from these egregious acts and so they actually felt like the Nuremberg Code didn't apply to them that mm. it um, you know they didn't really like that's great that they were created but you know we do good stuff here uh, and then here comes the Belmont report specifically because we don't do good stuff 
Mm. Um, and capitalism is incredibly intertwined with that. Uh, when you think about like personal gain and research funding and publications and uh, good science, you know, all, all of the ethical concerns um, that come up um, today, people will sacrifice research ethics um, for personal gain, which comes with capital and mm. power. So yeah. there, thank goodness for IRBs, um, but there's a lot of other research that's not encompassed under an IRB uh, that specifically affects tribes and um, and so that's where I, sometimes I get worried about like who's who's looking at this stuff. Um, how do I look at it? Yeah, and I think that that really solidifies the importance of individuals. Um, again, not saying don't participate in surveys and and studies and and things like that because it's important to, but it what you're saying just solidifies that it's so important to ask questions and just to not assume, don't assume that people have your best interest in mind. Don't assume that people are looking out for your interest. It's really your job to make sure that you understand what you're doing, make sure that you understand like what it's going to be used for, what your responsibilities are, what their responsibilities are, and to move forward from there. Um, I was working on on Mondays, I work with a data sovereignty group, and there are so many brilliant people doing all sorts of work in that group. And one of the things that we were doing was helping to review a list of um, a list of really like rights of indigenous peoples in trials and in research. And one of the things that we talked about with informed consent is that it really, how do I explain this? Informed consent, it means the ability to say no, but it also means the ability to say yes. And you know, as we've been really diminished in the past, even in like, my brain goes to like in our legal framework of indigenous peoples and like the doctrine of discovery, basically, these early property cases say like, well, Indians can't own land because they're savages. They don't even understand what land ownership even means. And they're incompetent, they're wards of the state. And so there's really in the American history, there's this deep history of not thinking that indigenous people have the ability to think for themselves, have the autonomy to consent to things, have the um, ability to comprehend what a sale of something means or comprehend what a contract means. Um, and granted, sometimes that's because they're not written in our languages. And so if you don't speak a language, you can't comprehend what a contract means in that language. And that's why we have certain rules about how treaties are construed and these canons of construction that say that, uh, you know, tr um, treaties, if they're, if you're not sure what it means, then it goes in favor of native people because, uh, we were we didn't have equal footing as far as like understanding what these treaties meant because they weren't written in our language when people were signing them so but assuming that informed consent is really happening um, in these studies today and somebody who's you know speaks english 
is asking these right questions and understanding what they're really consenting to and they have all the information, then we also need to respect a yes. And, and so it really falls on an individual person, whether indigenous or not, to have that understanding and ask all of those questions so that um, you know, their yes is really a yes. And again, that goes to the relationship of the researcher and the participant. But um, in my mind, if I was participating in something, I would print off that list of the UIHI resources and, and ask every question on it. Definitely. So they really did, UIHI really does a good job at um, providing materials for participants make sure that they're informed and know what they're what kind of decisions they're getting themselves into mm -hmm. um, but this what you were just talking about actually the the ability to say yes um, came up during the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine trials on the Navajo Nation because a lot of folks were had spoke out and said you know this is terrible and we shouldn't be doing this in the community and x y and z and so then it's like if we don't do this study here, um, then folks don't have the ability to say yes because they don't have access to the studies that are going around, um, that are happening around the country and the world actually, this world globally. But um, so then how is that fair as well? Like when we specifically exclude people just because some people feel like the community shouldn't have it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I also I go I'll go back to these tribal IRBs. You know, they have the ability to say yes or no to this research. And um, and when they say yes, they make sure that that yes means specific things and that it's done in a in a really good way. Yeah. And so then other people, if they don't want to participate, then they can say no. But if they do, they can say yes and they can, you know, have that opportunity. Yeah, it's such an interesting mix of sovereignty, the, you know, the, the consent of a native nation to allow researchers to come in and even have access to their citizens that live on their land, as well as like this individual self-determination of tribal citizens who then can choose or not choose to participate in the study, and then kind of this broader umbrella of you know ethics and what is ethical in doing these studies in the first place one pillar of research or of ethical research is uh that the purpose needs to be really good and the science behind it needs to be really good because if the purpose doesn't make sense or you know doesn't align with the study procedures or it's just bad science then it's really not ethical to mm. uh put any or to expose anybody to potential risk, no matter how small. And there's always some minimal risk involved in research. Yeah. And I do just want to point out that most research, we're talking about, you know, all these things that have happened or could happen, but most research is done in a really good way. And there are a lot of people, a lot of regulations, a lot of different um, bodies looking at regulation and making sure that what has happened in the past doesn't happen again and so mm -hmm. most research today is done in a really good way um but you know you still have that doesn't mean you can't you shouldn't still be vigilant about it yeah that makes sense well i think that leads us to our last question which is i am interested to hear what you would like to see um you know grow or change or 
you know, develop in your career, in your lifespan, you know, what, what are you passionate about and, and what would you like to see move through the world as you continue through this career? So many things, (laughs) where to start? Um, Definitely growing research or what there's a specific name for, I think it's called um, research literacy in communities. I'm just increasing that because that gives folks access to different treatments and just opportunities that can help them or has the ability to help their community. Uh, And then uh, actually Tuskegee University did this really well when we went to that intensive. And I don't think we mentioned this, but the descendants of the men who were in that study uh, were all invited to this um, meeting. And so everything that was discussed, uh, they were all a part of that conversation Mm -hmm. and um, given a a really strong voice and listened to. And and I think that's something that's super important because when you think about academic spaces, you just think about all of these scholars who study this stuff and they just have their own conversations. And then what does that mean for the community? And so that's just one example of, or the direction I would want to see research and academia move in, um, which is more of a community center space and not, you know, do you need X, Y, and Z to a part of this? Um, so that's the main, the main thing I would like to do. But then I'm also super interested in these research ethics. And um, when I was at NIH, I found that there are a lot of natives who, like 19,000 natives who just join random studies because they fit the eligibility criteria. Um, These studies are not specific to any tribe or in just natives in general or just open to whoever. And I I started thinking about what are the unintended negative consequences of that? Um, There's zero tribal IRBs involved. There are no national IRBs involved that have a specific focus on um, the indigenous kind of consequence or benefit of this and so what does that mean um so i would like to see that kind of area fleshed out more and see the ethics around that discussed so you're and, talking about studies that aren't necessarily going through a tribe but just uh, utilizing indigenous data data collected from individuals who identify as indigenous yes yeah. got it yeah, and you wouldn't think that there would be a lot of issues, but, uh, you know, people write case reports, is that which actually happened, and there was no consultation, and um, and so who's monitoring this, what are the potential consequences, um, and how do we mitigate those so that everybody can have access to, to research to improve their health. And the other component, the final component that I would like to see over, change over my career is Uh, I would like to see more policy and um, advocacy in research. And this is already happening with community-based participatory research, but I would like to see it happen in all communities. Mostly people focus on um, indigenous communities because we have, well, when we talk about this, because we have um, very defined, community is is very defined basically, but there are other communities that Um, would benefit from this as well, or from this type of review um, and policy and advocacy. And um, I feel like a lot of the research that people are involved in, and even I'm involved in with infectious diseases, uh, all of the, this social stuff is kind of left out. And so when people 
an example is um, when people have a housing and um, food, then they're generally pretty, uh, and access to medical care, then, then they're pretty protected against infectious diseases. Um, and then we don't have to do all this other research, right? And so just making sure that people's basic needs are met. And then after that, what questions do we still need to answer? What does our health look like then? Who is the standard of health at that point? And somebody, uh, when we were in Tuskegee, brought this up and I'm forgetting exactly who, but they said, you know, why is uh, white the standard? Why are we always comparing mm. ourselves to, in, to white populations, mostly it's white upper middle class men who have a very different reality than everybody else, right? Why don't we create, why are they the ceiling? You know, why don't we create our own um, standards? And I, and I think that we can't really do that until we address everybody's basic needs, until everyone has a pretty even um, ground. And then we can start to, you know, decide what the ceiling looks like. I think it's because they can afford to shop at Whole Foods, but that is not an <laughs> informed opinion. That's just sort of my opinion. But yeah, that's all so and interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's so interesting and it's so relevant. And again, I think that's why it's so important for people like you to be in this field. So um, I'll go ahead and wrap it up because we have been talking for an hour and a half and I could talk to you all night. But Thank you so much for being here, for being part of this conversation and for sharing your knowledge with us. I really appreciate it. All righty, take care. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Determination. This episode is produced by me, Dara Blackwater. This episode is supported by the Tucson Foundations through the University of Arizona College of Law. A big ahead to them both for making these conversations possible. Our intro music is Move, I'm Indigenous by Aqualu Bershison, and our outro music is A Distance by Kale Crow. A yeha to Kale and Aqualu for making music for us to thrive to. Until next time, I'm Dara Blackwater. Hagone. Whatever you plan on doing, I just hope you plan on doing it soon. Because I'm wide awake, lying away for that embrace to come and leave me in ruin. Remember the time like photographs The moment passes wicked and cruel Don't let it ride Find the focus that you started with And just make it through